0: Um, so this this feels um, a, a tiny bit profane following the prayer, but uh, how about those caps? <laughs> yeah. um, so as a public, this is this is all tied in because I care about you. Public service announcement: the parade is on Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Um, so if you are anywhere near Chinatown or anywhere near DC, um, prepare for delays. Okay, so. Um, It's going to be crazy. Uh, So we are uh, in the third week of our our series called "Eitzer: Women of the Bible. And to recap, the purpose of this series has been twofold. The first, uh, that we might learn from our spiritual foremothers, both those you may uh, be familiar with and those you may not yet know. And second, that we might see how these women, uh, each in their unique way, points us to the hope found in Jesus. So in the first week, Matthew reintroduced us to Eve not just as the one who gave in to temptation and and sinned, but as one who was, along with Adam, made in the image of God, that she was an image bearer. We were reminded that Eve was etzer, meaning help, and yet she was not created to be a helper subordinate to Adam, but to be alongside him, a co-laborer for the flourishing of all creation. Of the 21 times that the word etzer is used in the Old Testament, 16 of those occurrences refer to God as Israel's help, which should dispel any notion of women's inferiority. Last week, Marissa Stubbs, one of our elders, uh, preached and, 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 and looked at what we can learn from Hagar, who's often seen as just a footnote in the story of Abraham and Sarah, but is so much more than that in, in God's story. And she, she highlighted that it was a pregnant fugitive slave girl who named God as the God who sees me. Marissa also reminded us that this God is a God of outrageous, amazing, and at times offensive grace. And this week, I want to talk to you about Rizpah. Now, don't worry if you don't know who Rizpa is or if you don't know much about her. That's what this series is for. Uh, there are some better-known names, like Eve. Uh, there are some names that you may know a little bit about, like Hagar. And then there are some you may not yet know very well, like Rizpah. And to be honest, I was in that camp myself, even though I've, I've read through the Bible many times since I was a kid. It's something I try to do uh, every few years, not least because every time I do it, I discover something I overlooked or skimmed past or that my experience allows me to see in a new light. And up until last year, I knew, I knew the name of Rizpah, and I might have been able to remember that she was uh, connected to King Saul, the first king of Israel, but probably not much else. Uh, what happened last year was that I read a book called Radical Reconciliation by South African theologian Alan Aubrey Bousack and American theologian Curtis Paul DeYoung. And in one of the chapters, Busack told the story of Rizpah in such a way that when we were talking about planning and you know, planning out this series, I knew that I had to Talk about it. I knew that she had to be one of the women that we highlighted. Now, these, these few weeks were in the Old Testament, and today I need to give sort of an Old Testament violence warning. Um, just, to, just to give you a heads up, okay? Uh, some of this is hard to hear. Uh, but So who, who was Rizpah? The first mention of her comes in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Um, it says, now, Sa- now Saul, King Saul, had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Aya. So Saul, as I just mentioned, was the first king of Israel. You can read his story in the book of 1 Samuel. And Rizpah was Saul's concubine. Okay, so in the day and age and culture, meaning the patriarchy of the Iron Age, this is just over uh, over a thousand years before Christ, so it's about 3,000 years ago. Kings would often marry for purposes of alliance or truce with a powerful family or a neighboring tribe or kingdom, but they would take concubines who were considered lower in status than their wives for pleasure. That was a common practice of the time. Uh, Right before this verse, uh, we're told that King David, who succeeded King Saul, had at least six wives at that time. But that's not all we're told about Rizpah. So we'll jump back a verse to to verse six. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So Saul was the first king. There was uh, animosity from from Saul towards David as, as he saw him as a challenger. And at this point though in the story, Saul and his son, Jonathan, are both dead. But conflict continues, including through Abner. Abner was Saul's general. And it says Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. In other words, he was leveraging his position. He was trying to secure his future. So now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ayah. And Ishbal, who was a son of Saul, surviving son of Saul, he said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? What's happening here is the dead king's son is accusing the dead king's general of sleeping with the dead king's concubine, which to explain the customs of the day was a power play. Okay, for a man to claim a king's wives or concubines was to position himself as a potential ruler, as if to say, by taking the dead king's women, I can take the dead king's place. And just as last week we heard about uh, Sarai giving her maidservant Hagar to Abram as a proxy to start their family and how that was culturally okay at the time, so was this. And we can all acknowledge there are limitations in judging people who lived 3,000 years ago by the standards of 21st century America, by the progress that we have made. Uh, Lord knows folks living even decades from now will judge us uh, for some of the things we think are normal. But I also think it's okay for us, uh, right for us even, to look back at how women were treated in those days and identify the ways that that doesn't reflect the nature of the kingdom of God that that doesn't reflect the value of women as bearers of the image of God as much as men are. As Marissa said last week, just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean it isn't dehumanizing. Right. It's important to note then that our first introduction to Rizpah is not just in relation to men, concubine of Saul, daughter of Ayah, but as a pawn in the power struggles of men, Ishbal, Abner, and David. It's easy for those who have power and privilege easy for those of us who have power and privilege, to treat others, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as objects, as means to an end, often our own advancement, often our own gratification, rather than as bearers of the divine image and our equals. And so we first meet Rizpah in chapter 3. And then we have to fast forward a number of, uh, uh, through a number of chapters, so I'm just going to give you highlights. So this is what happens in the following chapters. Abner, the king's general, is assassinated. Ishbal, Saul's son, is also assassinated. Uh, as the last man standing, David is named king over all of Israel. He takes more wives and concubines, including Rizpah and Saul's other wives and concubines. That was the prerogative of the victorious king. And also including, since we're speaking of the powerful using others for their own gratification, Bathsheba. You may remember that story. You may remember that God judges him for that. God calls him to account. That's important to note for later. Also in those intervening chapters, one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes one of David's daughters, Tamar, and then in retaliation, another of David's sons, Tamar's brother, Absalom, kills Amnon, rebels against David, usurps the throne, um, and is ultimately defeated, though. Now, that's a lot of names, and you don't have to remember them all, but What I'm trying to communicate is a lot happens in these chapters, between chapter 3, when we first meet Rizpah, and chapter 21, when we encounter her again. And, And that's okay that we don't hear much about her. She's not the main character in this story, David is. A lot had happened in David's life. He experienced great successes and terrible failures, high highs and low lows. He had suffered tragic losses, including several of his children. And he had also been the cause of great suffering to others. And so with that context, we get to chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And in case you were wondering who the Gibeonites are, the narrator very helpfully says, now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, which was a neighboring tribe. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them back in Joshua nine, when they first entered the promised land, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. In other words, Saul had violated a treaty. He was guilty of spilling innocent blood. That's basically what it means to say there was blood guilt on Saul and his house. And so, again, to save us some time, I'm going to summarize some of what happens next. The Gibeonites ask for blood in return. Saul spilled their blood, so they want his. And sometimes the word used here is translated as expiation or atonement some well-freighted theological language, Uh, but the closest contemporary and commonly used word would be restitution, or maybe payback. And so they say in verse six, since Saul is dead, let seven of his sons be handed over to us and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. David spares Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. But in verse eight, it says the king, David, took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, another Mephibosheth, because you can't have too many Mephibosheths in a family. (laughs) (laughs) And the five sons of Merab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. He gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together, They were put to to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Because Saul had spilled blood in violation of a long-held treaty, David handed over seven of uh, of Saul's progeny, two sons and five grandsons, to the Gibeonites, and they were executed as payback. Now, I want us to pause for a moment and ask, how does that make you feel? It doesn't make me feel great. I mean, the more I study the Bible, the more I engage with the stories of my spiritual ancestors, the more I realize how flawed the heroes of faith really are, and sometimes how genuinely unsympathetic they can be. But this feels like a little more than, oh, he made a mistake. Right? I love David. The the, the plucky shepherd boy who slew a giant, the, the musician and songwriter who penned some of the most glorious, evocative, expressive psalms which have seen me through uh, many a valley and given voice to many a mountaintop experience. I still sing and pray David's words, and they give voice to my faith. I also know he was not perfect. I know he did some truly jacked up things. Uh, But this week, I I read one commentary on this passage that said this. uh, The writer's chief reason for telling this story is to show that David was not responsible for the deaths of the seven men now executed. This passage, therefore, reminds the reader about David's treatment of Mephibosheth, the one he spared, and shows, listen to this, his scrupulous care for the remains of Saul and his descendants. And I was like, scrupulous care? In the words of Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. I certainly, I certainly don't think... The mothers of the men would agree with you there. Scrupulous care. (laughs) Don't believe everything you read. (laughs) Even in commentaries sometimes. So, 18 chapters and many years after we first encountered Rizpah, we meet her again. And again, she's subject to the whims of the powerful. And this time, it's her children who are treated as a means to an end. David offered them up to appease the Gibeonites. You think she got a say in it? Probably not, but again, this was accepted legal practice. See, the people of Israel were living under the law of Moses, which says in Deuteronomy 19, show no pity, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, foot for foot. It was known as lex talionis, which is essentially a legally authorized retaliation. And let me be clear, this was progressive when compared to the surrounding nations. This was progressive because the ancient Near East was a world of escalation where if you cut me I can kill you. If you kill one of my cousins I will wipe out your family. So the law of Moses was actually limiting the damage to only one for one. Only one life for one life. Only one eye for one eye. Not the whole family, not the whole body. Does that make sense? Deuteronomy 19.21 was progressive for the time. So no matter what we might think about it now, in the context of 2 Samuel, uh, under the law of Moses, David was justified. Saul had spilled blood, so so Saul's blood had to be spilled. And since Saul was dead, his descendants' blood had to be spilled. Now, I'm not trying to convince you that this is okay. I just want us to be aware of the cultural realities that were going on. It was assumed then That once reparations were made, once restitution was made, God would relieve the famine. After all, when David asked about the famine, God pointed to Saul's blood guilt, right? Therefore, if we give the Gibeonites what they asked for, that should do it, right? But no respite comes when the men are killed. The famine continues. The sacrifice of the seven sons doesn't solve the problem. And we don't know how old the sons were, Armoni and Mephibosheth. We don't even know the names of the five sons of Merab and Adriel. But I want us to try to empathize with Rizpah, to put ourselves in her shoes, to see what she saw, to feel what she felt. The British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem called Rizpah. This is an excerpt from it. Flesh of my flesh was gone but bone of my bone was left. I stole them all from the lawyers, and you, will you call it a theft? My baby, the bones that had sucked me, the bones that had laughed and had cried, theirs? Oh no, they are mine, not theirs. They had moved in my side. Can you feel her grief, the pain of her loss, her anger and helpless frustration? I wonder if anyone tried to comfort her with pious platitudes or justifications about it being culturally appropriate or the king being legally justified in his actions. I would imagine that that probably happened because that's such a normal human response in the face of someone else's loss and grief. But what does Rizpah do? Verse 10, Then Rizpah the daughter of Ayah took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself. The literal translation is actually to the rock. So it could be talking about to God. She may have spread out the sackcloth to the rock. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens, she did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. This is a 24 hour vigil, watching over these bodies from the beginning of harvest until the rains fell. In case case you didn't know, the beginning of the harvest is in April and the rains typically fall in October. That's every day for seven months. All day, every day, for seven months. Here's another thing. It was customary for bodies to be buried by sundown on the same day. Deuteronomy 21. When someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang him on a tree his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree you shall bury him that same day for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse And yet these bodies were not afforded that dignity not by the Gibeonites who had executed them not by David who had condemned them and Yet Rizpah kept vigil by the bodies of her sons and her husband's grandsons, protecting them from scavengers, even as they were all exposed to the elements, even as the bodies decomposed, even as I'm sure her friends and relatives tried to persuade her to break the vigil. Maybe they asked her, well, what good is it going to do? What difference is it going to make? After all, you're just a lowly concubine. You're not even one of the the women that David chose for himself. You're a hand-me-down. Why not just allow yourself to grieve and move on? Do you really think you'll accomplish anything? I found a a few artistic renderings of of what this vigil might have looked like. First, a more somber and passive portrayal by Turner and Duncarton, probably at night. Then a more active one by the French artist, uh, Gustave Doré. But this third one by George Becker is, is my favorite, Rispa in action, defending the bodies. defending all seven bodies. There's something I don't want us to miss. Alan Busak pointed it out for me. RISPA fights for all those seven young men on the crosses, all of them, yet only two of them are hers. Sympathy is not solidarity. This is what solidarity means. Every child on a cross is my child. Sympathy is not solidarity. Every child on a cross is my child. That's where my faith has led me, what my understanding of the gospel calls me to, the ever-expanding scope of God's concern. See, I grew up in a church where it was all about my personal relationship with Jesus. That's what was important, and that is important. In college, I began to realize that God cared about how I related to my family and my friends, my relationships, and that also is important. And then the circle got wider to those I don't know, to my neighbor as defined in the parable of the the Good Samaritan as anyone I encounter who is in need and that is also important. And then the circle kept growing to every life and every sphere of life, every part of God's creation. That's what the kingdom is about. And so my understanding of God and the gospel has implications and effects all along the spectrum from our personal finances to what we do with our bodies to how we engage with our coworkers and our work to our civic engagement, our public witness and our politics, all the way back down to our everyday battles and the habits and rhythms and practices and decisions and words that make us who we are and reveal who we are. There's nothing God does not care about. There's no person God does not care about. And I believe no person God does not call us to care about. See, it would have been easier for Rizpah to just advocate for her own sons. That's understandable. We are wired to take care of ourselves and our own. It's a sociological principle of self-interest. It's our most common motivator. We might occasionally speak up if we believe something is wrong, but we rarely kick into gear we, we rarely kick it into gear until we have something to lose. Uh, I watched an interview uh, with Trevor Noah, who's the host of The Daily Show. He differentiated between being offended and being affected. Being offended and being affected. Being offended can spur us to action. Being affected means we have skin in the game. Being offended is fueled by outrage and it can burn out quickly. Being affected is fueled by necessity and survival and persists and perseveres and pushes through because it has to. And I think that's an accurate portrayal of real life. We often don't care about something until we're affected. We often don't pay attention to things until we have to. But I believe the God of Jesus Christ calls us to expand our circle of care and concern. To break down the walls keeping us in and them out and to live out a vision of the kingdom where we care because all are made in the image of God. Because God loves every single one of us. Because as Dr. King would say, we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied in a single, one single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. That is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. Or as Father Greg Boyle put it, as we live out the idea of what he called kinship, this idea of being connected, kinship, that that we care for others as if they were our own, what happens is we are also returned to our image of Godness. He'd say we are returned to ourselves. God calls us beyond self-interest and particularly to care for the needs of the vulnerable, where every child on the cross is my child. The other day, I was um, driving to, to Watson's, and as I passed their back alley, I saw this sign. Drive like your kids live here. Drive like your kids live here. It's the same sentiment, isn't it? Just because you don't have kids doesn't mean you shouldn't care for or at least be aware of others' kids. And so this week, Matthew and I and some of our elders We signed on to a letter along with a number of other organizations, including World Relief and Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, asking the president to end the policy that is separating parents from their children at the US-Mexico border. See, the the, the policy is, is purportedly targeted at immigrants trying to enter illegally, but it actually disproportionately affects asylum seekers, families fleeing gang violence in El Salvador, in Honduras, and Guatemala. It adds trauma on top of trauma. If every child on the cross is my child, if every child seeking asylum is my child, if every child in need of care is my child, in what ways would our behavior, our beliefs, our practices change if we began to see every child as one of us? In what ways would we change If we began to see every person as one of us, and not one of them, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, gay or straight or trans or bi, black or white or Asian or Latino or native, poor or rich, married or single. Could we care about LGBTQ folks before one of our kids comes out to us? Could we care about school shootings before it happens at our kid's school or our friend's school? Could we care about the opioid epidemic before it affects someone we know? This is not about partisan politics. This is about the image of God in every person. Now, let me say this, too. We live in a time when we're exposed to hundreds, maybe even thousands, of areas of concern every single day, right? Uh, Just this week, um, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain's deaths brought the specter of mental health and suicide back to our attentions, Uh, for some of us way too soon um, after we lost Grace. Everything that's hit the news from Hawaii to Guatemala to Gaza to Puerto Rico and then all the things that are going on in your lives and the lives of those, you, those of you love that, that don't make the news. It can be and often is overwhelming. And I know that one response is to want to turn it all off or to self-medicate or to distract ourselves because we can't handle it all. And sometimes for the sake of your health, if you can do that, do it. It's true that we can't handle it all. We weren't meant to carry the weight of the world. But I believe that even as God calls us to be faithful with what's in front of us, and that's what I believe, I also believe that the arc of our lives should be toward an ever-expanding circle of care and concern, Infused, infused with the graciousness of the Spirit toward ourselves because we can't do it all, and toward others because we don't know it all. Okay, Graciousness toward ourselves because we can't do it all and toward others because we don't know it all. We don't know what's going on in their lives. This is not about making you feel guilty about not being more or doing more or whatever, but let's not wait. Let's not wait until we're personally affected before we take action. Sympathy is not solidarity. Uh, I was reminded of that this week in another way. On Thursday afternoon at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is where I got my master's and where I'm currently uh, doing my doctoral studies, several students undertook a public protest um, at a ceremony for the graduating class, decrying the institutional racism and white supremacy that they and other staff and faculty of color, particularly African Americans, had experienced for decades. (coughs) It's also an online campaign uh, under the hashtags Toxic Fuller, Black Exodus, and seminary while black, with people sharing stories of their damaging encounters with racism, heartbreaking stories in the classroom and on the campus. Now I'll be honest, my first reaction was defensiveness. That wasn't and hasn't been my experience of Fuller. Fuller is near and dear to my heart. My dad went there, my brother went there, I'm there now. Fuller made me who I am today, set me on the path that led me to this point right here was instrumental in preparing me for ministry, in opening my eyes to God's call to justice. Many of my deepest friendships come out of that place. But I sat with it, particularly alongside Rispa's story. Every child on the cross is my child. God reminded me that just because that wasn't my experience doesn't mean that that wasn't their experience. And the fact that I may not have experienced an injustice doesn't mean that injustice doesn't exist. Maybe the Spirit is speaking, and I just need to listen. See, if we're bound together like a body, single garment, where no part is indispensable, where we mourn together instead of cutting each other off and siloing ourselves away, then we are called to care for the whole, to advocate for what is good for the whole, And in this case, it means naming and decrying and advocating against and rooting out white supremacy at an institution I love and care deeply for. We cannot do everything, but we can do something. If every child on the cross is my child, we must do something, just as Rizpah did. And so to return to her story, one of the interesting things that we one of the interesting things about the story uh, is that we actually never hear her speak. We never hear her speak. In many ways she is voiceless, she is powerless, she is helpless, she has no authority, she has no social standing, no influence to wield. She is not a mover or a shaker. And yet when David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ai the concubine of Saul had done, now we don't know when he was told, was it really seven months later? When he was told, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the people of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them up on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. So Saul and Jonathan had been killed on foreign soil and their bones had never been brought back to Israel to be buried properly. He brought, uh, David brought up from there the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan. They gathered the bones of those who had been impaled. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela in the tomb of his father Kish. They did all that the king commanded. After that, God heeded the supplications for the land. After that, after David collected the bones of Saul and Jonathan, after David gathered the remains of the seven sons, after David gave them all a proper burial, then the famine came to an end. Rizpah is the reason that David was even prompted to do any of this in the first place. When David was told what Rizpah had done. See, although she did not speak a word with her mouth, with her actions, Rizpah spoke volumes of truth to power. Her public protest was a prick to David's conscience, an appeal to his humanity, a reminder of her humanity, and the humanity of the sons who had been sacrificed maybe even more than that, a reminder of the nature of God. See, this is, this is what it says in Deuteronomy, in the law. Deuteronomy 10, this is one of my favorite descriptors of God in the Old Testament. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan, and in that society an orphan was anyone without a father, and for the widow who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and all the people shall say, amen. Amen." Deuteronomy 32, the Lord said, vengeance is mine. (laughs) David knew this God. He was well acquainted with this God but he needed to be reminded by someone who had been a victim of his forgetfulness that this God is the defender and champion of the fatherless and the widow, the one who claims the right to retribution and judgment and justice for himself and no one else. That's one reason why we need each other, why we need community to remind us when our actions and our words show that we have forgotten God. We have all been David in this story. We may not have had as Devastating repercussions, but we have all forgotten God. And so to recap, there's a famine. God says Saul's house has spilled innocent blood. Note that God doesn't say what should be done. David gives up Saul's sons as sacrifices. Now that doesn't work. Rizpah keeps a daily vigil for seven months. David is reminded what it means to be a decent human being and gives Saul's bones and Jonathan's bones and the seven sons' bones a proper burial and then God heals the land. Now, I I want us to be careful about drawing simplistic causal connections here as if God were simply a capricious deity who needed to be appeased in order to have mercy on his people. And so this is how Old Testament professor Jean Sheldon explains it. She says, like a number of other stories in the Hebrew Bible, this story contains point and counterpoint. The point seems to be that of ritual execution bordering on human sacrifice to repair a broken covenant made before God. But why offer the sacrifice? Do two wrongs make a right? Does this ritual slaughter of sons who are forced to suffer for their father's sin make things right? And so Rizpah carries out symbolically the response that should be made. Whether or not she realizes what she's doing, her actions as the narrator conveys them speak of a counterpoint, repentance, not sacrifice. It hauntingly reflects something David himself says, for he prays it in his most famous repentance prayer, Psalm 51. He says, For you, O God, have no delight in sacrifice. For you, O God, have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you know the story, you know that Psalm 51 was written after the incident with Bathsheba, which was before this happened, before all of this happened. Right? Before all of this took place, David had literally written a song about God's preference for repentance over sacrifice. And so Gene Sheldon continues, it is Rizpah, not David, who does what God requires. Not sacrifice, Not ritual execution, not expiation, but a mother's sorrow. Her silent vigil and an undoing of the execution lead to a healing of the land. David is not the one to be emulated in this case. Instead, it is Rizpah, whose example we are called to follow, because her example points us to Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate example, the archetype of kingdom living, the one who shows us what God is like and what we as image bearers of God are supposed to be like. Philippians tells us he did not consider power and privilege as things to be clung onto for his own sake or even used for his own gratification, but he chose to give them up for the sake of others, for the good of others. He did not put anyone else on the chopping block so that he could be spared. He was the scapegoat. The one who, although he prayed that he wouldn't have to endure the cross, ultimately said, your will, God, be done, and took the blood guilt on himself. He took the shame and the blame and the pain and suffering and enmity of the world onto himself, not putting it on someone else, in order to break the wheel of retribution and sin, to end the cycle. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Galatian church, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, this, this verse may be familiar, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Deuteronomy 21:23. Jesus took the curse on himself. Rizpa and Jesus both broke cycles of retribution and violence and suffering with acts of love. They both demonstrated the truth of that line from Song of Songs. Love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Like Rizpah, like Rispa, we may not feel like we can make much of a dent in anything. Like Rizpa, we may not feel like we can affect much. Like Rizpa, we may already feel too overwhelmed for words. But like Rizpah, God is with us. God invites us to do something, to make whatever difference we can in whatever spaces he has placed us. You know, and I'll close with this, Rizpah's name, it means a hot stone or a live coal. A hot stone or a live coal. There's another place in the Bible where that word shows up. It's in Isaiah 6. The prophet Isaiah is shown a vision of God Almighty on his throne, and there are seraphs, there are angels, and they call out to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is overwhelmed by the sight and and by the realization of his unworthiness to be in the presence of a holy God. And he says, woe is me, I'm, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, And then he writes, then one of the seraphs, one of the angels flew to me holding a live coal, Ritzbah, that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs and the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Another translation says, your sin is atoned for. And the Hebrew verb there comes from the same root as the word that was used in 2 Samuel. Expiation, atonement, restitution. Only this time it's not pay back, it's paid for. The live stone, the live coal, the hot stone, the ritzpah, was what God used to cleanse the prophet Isaiah. To remove his sin, just as the woman, Ritzpah, was who God used to do the right thing to remind David to do the right thing so that God might heal the land. The hot stone, the Ritzpah, prompted the prophet Isaiah to respond to God's call of whom shall I send and who will go for us with, here am I. Send me. I pray that the story of the woman Ritzpah does the same to you. And so what would it look like for you to be a Ritzpah? A live coal, a hot stone, a cleansing, God-reminding presence. Who's God calling you to speak up for? Particularly if it pushes you out of your comfort zone. Not out of self-interest, but out of a genuine concern for the other and for God's rule and reign in every life and every sphere of life. That's a big ask. Maybe start small. Start by doing one good thing for someone this week that you will get no credit for, that you will get no benefit from, maybe that they never even find out about. Uh, Maybe it's as simple and tangible as volunteering uh, for a ministry team on Sunday here to bless the church community or or to volunteer for the block party to bless our neighbors. Uh, Maybe it's signing up to, to go to the racial justice event so you can listen and learn how and when to speak up. Start where you are. To close, i want to invite the band to come on up, and I want to ask you to stand as you're able. And I want to ask us to read together the prayer of St. Francis, which we prayed earlier. So would you join me in this? To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.